Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Our new listeners, welcome. Our old listeners, welcome back. Another episode of Magical Education awaits you. But first, we would like to say a few words. Nitwit, blubber, oddment, tweak. Podcast nine and three quarters topic of the week is what actually is magic again? Hi there listeners, it's me, Jem. And I'm Ria. And today we are talking again about what magic is and how it works. Uh, this is part two, so if you haven't heard the first part of this series, I guess, just go back and listen to the episode where Jem did all the talking. Okay, so last episode, you basically spent an hour trying to come up with a definition of magic. Yes, okay, so this definition is probably uh, going to be revised and edited a lot in this episode, but this is what I came up with. Mm-hmm. Magic is emotion manifested by will, in brackets, consciously or subconsciously, in brackets, to cause fundamental change to what is natural. So far, I think that's a pretty good definition of magic. But in this episode, I want to talk about some of the different branches of magic, uh-huh. and we'll see if that definition holds up against what we see magic doing in the books. Yeah. Okay. I've got the types of magic here. I've separated the types of magic into human, Mm -hmm. magical creatures, and I'm lumping animals, beasts, beings, plants, and places into magical creatures. Magical creatures is just sort of everything else. Okay, so humans and then everything else. (laughs) Humans, literally everything that isn't humans. Right. (laughs) And something that I'm calling ancient or elemental magic. We'll get into that later. Right. So, first of all, human magic. This is the vast, vast majority of what we see in the books. And I think mm-hmm. what is going to most fit into your definition of what magic is. Yes. Witches and wizards can use magic. It's a hereditary skill, which allows them to access some kind of force, which allows them to alter the laws of nature. You're saying that force is like a manifestation of their emotions. Yeah. For witches and yeah. wizards, this almost always requires a physical tool or focus, most often a wand. Yes. Okay, so I'm going to talk about the different types of human magic. The first one is wild magic. Mm -hmm. This is what we call magic that's used instinctively by young witches and wizards in moments of great stress. It's unstable and has unpredictable effects. Yeah. What I think is interesting about wild magic is the Fantastic Beast movie, when they introduce the Obscurus, Mm -hmm. it sort of implies that witches and wizards have to use magic. Yeah. Like, if they don't, it sort of not quite corrupts them, but it's like they can't, it just builds up and builds up and they can't control it if they don't use magic. Yeah. That's also something that made me think that magic was definitely something internal to the person using it and not something just external. Mm -hmm. Because that implies to me that if you're not allowing yourself to be magical, it builds up and could explode out of you. And that was described for Ariana as well. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose we don't see any examples of that happening in adult wizards, but we don't see any adult wizards who are trying to suppress their magic. Mm. We do know that it's not possible for muggles or squibs to learn magic if they don't already have it. Mm. And I guess it's not possible to remove the magic of a witch or wizard, someone who has magic. Yes. The next kind of magic is wandless magic. So (laughs) this is general magic that's done without a wander focus. So it's possible with great power and great training, but is also often less focused and controlled. Yeah. And it's related to um, nonverbal magic, but nonverbal magic's taught in the sixth year of Hogwarts, so it's presumably a bit easier. Yeah. Okay, I want to talk in detail about spells. Yes. 
Spells are, I would say, like like 80% of the magic we see in the books. Maybe 90%. HP Wiki talks about spells as like everyday, all-purpose tools. Yeah. So like short bursts of magic, which wizards and witches use to accomplish simple everyday tasks. Sometimes spells have physical effects like colored lights, loud noises, but not all the time. Yeah. Usually they require an incantation and a gesture with a wand. But as I've just said, wandless magic and nonverbal magic exist. So really all you need to cast a spell is like the ability to manipulate magic. So, you know, being a witch mm-hmm. and the intent to do so. Really all you need is your will. Yeah. Which does tie back into your definition. Yeah. Spells usually have a limited influence, Mm -hmm. so they might be restricted by a target area or a duration, Uh, but the effectiveness of a spell will depend on the strength of the caster. Yep. So um, spells that are cast by somebody very powerful, like Dumbledore, are obviously much better and stronger than spells cast by, like, some random person. Mm -hmm. But spells can also become stronger by accident. For example, in, I believe, third year when they're learning cheering charms in charms class yeah either ron or harry i think it's harry accidentally cast a cheering charm that's so strong that ron becomes so completely hysterical that they just can't calm him down yeah so that's interesting yeah i like that you can accidentally make spells super effective oh there's also things where like Apparently holding multiple wands makes spells stronger, or everybody casting a spell together makes spells stronger. That one makes sense, but... Holding multiple wands. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't, but it happens. Unless it was the Elder Wand, but, like, wands are just a tool. Yeah, it's just a focusing point. Maybe, I don't know, triple focus. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to get into it too much, but it happens in the seventh book when... Harry is in Malfoy Manor. He grabs all the wands that have been confiscated, including Draco's wand, and he uses all of them to cast an Expelliarmus or a stunning spell at Greyback. Yeah. And he gets basically put into a coma because the spell's so strong. Okay, but that just might be Harry, though. Expelliarmus is Harry's bread and butter. It's his favorite spell. (laughs) It is his favorite spell. Yeah. What's your favorite spell? No, we're not doing this (laughs) on tasks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Every time a tangent comes up, I'm like, ooh, what's down here? Let's go this way. Well, I, I already have an answer. It's not like I'd have to search. Okay. What is it? We're doing this, I guess. Orchidius. Oh, the flower spell. Yeah, I would just produce flowers all the time. Oh, that's nice. I like Jelly Legs Jinx because it's funny and mean. <laughs> and the counter curse is just Angelify. <laughs> <laughs> so... I've got here that even the strongest spells should end with the death of the caster. Uh-huh. But I don't know about that. We'll see if that's true in all cases as I go through more examples. Witches and wizards can create new spells, but that process is dangerous and can uh-huh. lead to death if they make a mistake. That's actually how Luna's mother died. <coughs> Snape. <laughs> yeah. Snape invented many spells. I I thought the reason that was dangerous is because this is when I was assuming wild magic was some kind of external force. And I thought, well, messing with that force without, you know, mm-hmm. the safety precautions that come with using a pre-established spell, using a wand, all those sorts of things, might be more dangerous. But if magic is internal, then why do you think inventing new spells is dangerous? Well, think of it like testing on yourself. That's like Brundlefly and the Hulk. If you're looking at it from a scientific point of view, in order to harness internal magic and to create new spells, you would have to sort of push yourself to a new limit that you haven't done before and maybe even test the spell on yourself. Yeah, all right. Okay, there are seven different classifications of spells, but there's overlap between all of them. So, of course, this system of like classifying different kinds of spells is it's purely academic. Like, this is just how humans have decided to classify the spells, it's not something inherent to magic. Yeah, they're just concepts. Yeah, it's just concepts. It's all magic, basically. Yeah. Okay, so the seven different kinds are transfiguration, charms, hexes, hexes, curses, Uh counter spells, and healing spells. Nice, okay. So I'm going to go through all of those. Transfiguration alters the target's form or appearance, changing one object into another. 
And a subcategory of transfiguration is conjuration, which we spoke about in the last episode. Yeah. So transfiguration is all about what an object is. Charms, by comparison, is all about what an object does. I see, yeah. So charms alters a target's inherent qualities, like its behaviours and capabilities. So making a pineapple tap dance across a desk. Yes. Whereas turning a pineapple into a pigeon is transfiguration. Yes. Okay. So jinx, hex, and curse are all sort of interrelated. They're basically levels. Yeah. So they're all dark magic. Jinx is a minor dark magic. Yeah. It says that they are irritating but amusing. So I don't know if jinxes are always amusing. But um maybe amusing for the caster. <laughs> yeah. So I'm thinking like Jelly Legs Jinx, Richter Sempra, which is like tickling hex, actually, so it's a hex. I suppose so. Yeah. Yeah, Jelly Legs Jinx is the classic one. So they are harmful, but they don't cause any lasting or serious harm. Yeah. And jinxes also require constant eye contact. <laughs> That's so funny. But Jelly Legs Jinx, just like staring them down as they struggle to stand. That's funny, as. Yeah. the eye contact is interesting because that to me implies that the spell is hard to do because it requires a lot of concentration Mm -hmm. but actually i think it i think it might be the opposite i think this the jinx is so mild that assuming you're casting it on a witch or wizard that they would just be able to throw it off basically unless you are constantly trying to keep it there like yeah. it's like a battle of wills to keep a jinx yeah. going it's pretty much it's more of a proximity thing if you can't see them you can't throw a jinx at them but this is what we see snape do or oh, snape quirrell spoilers <laughs> in the first harry potter book when he's jinxing harry's broom yes so i guess that's some kind of i don't know bucking jinx or something yeah but then apparently messing with a broom is powerful dark magic, so I don't know. Mm. Maybe it's just jinxing a broom is dark magic, but jinxing anything else is like, yeah. <laughs> Fun sibling rivalry. <laughs> Funny jelly legs times. Yeah. The next one up is a hex. Hex is moderate dark magic. It's a major inconvenience and can be more long-lasting. Right. So the example that was given on the HP wiki was making someone grow antlers out of their head. Yes. Which is painful and like a hassle to deal with. Yeah. What springs to my mind is the, is the bat bogey hex. Yeah. God, that's unpleasant. Yeah. You extract someone's snot from their nose and then it grows wings and flies around their head and pesters them. Is it still connected to their head? I always imagined that it was still connected so you can't even escape it. Oh, that's grosser. Yeah. Like tethered with a thin vein of snot. Yeah, Yuck. like <laughs> tethered and attacking your face, so you actually have to kill it. You can't just run away. <laughs> That's what I assumed the spell was. That's an ethical quandary and frustrating <laughs> and terrifying. Yeah. Okay, so worse than a hex is a curse. Yes. A curse is the worst kind of dark magic. It involves extreme danger or harm and... I've extrapolated that curses can be permanent. One could say they're unforgivable. <laughs> yes. The best examples are the unforgivable curses, Imperius, Cruciatus, and Avada Kedavra. Avada Kedavra. Yeah, that's right. Avada Kedavra? Why can't I say anything? <laughs> but we'll get into this more later. But there are curses from ancient history that are still active today. So as we know, Bill Weasley is a curse breaker working in Egypt to remove the curses cast by the ancient Egyptians to stop people from uh, raiding their tombs. Nice. Also unethical. (laughs) Hey, maybe if they cast those curses, you shouldn't go in there and steal all their stuff. Leave them alone. Leave them alone, white man. So counterspell is the next kind of magic. A counterspell is basically any kind of magic that undoes or halts the effects of an existing spell. So there's specific categories yeah. for all of them. Like there's counter jinxes and counter hexes and counter charms. Yeah. But there's also just general counter spells like finite incantatum. That's just generally stop spell. Yeah. Uh, and the final category of spells are healing spells, which just, what it says on the bottle, repairs living creatures. They they heal. <laughs> nice. 
So from those categories, what do you think about the longevity of magic? This is something that's bothered me as I've been trying to research these. Spells are apparently supposed to end with the caster, but curses seem to be able to last at least hundreds, thousands of years, if not longer. What do you think? Same with healing spells. Like, if the healer that tended to you dies, that doesn't mean that your broken bones come back and your dragon bones come back. Mm -hmm. So, no, I think it depends on the strength of the spell. Curses are obviously stronger, healing spells stronger, Mm -hmm. things like that. But minor spells will fall apart if the caster dies, or just over time, because most of these spells aren't designed to last forever. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so going back to your definition. Yes. So if I use my emotions, let's say hatred and anger, Mm -hmm. to cast a curse that I want to last for a thousand years and then I die, (laughs) how does that work? Well, do we have an example of that from the books? Well, I'm going off the ancient Egyptians again who cursed their tombs. Okay. Probably not with hatred and anger. Bad example. Okay. Well, going back to ghosts, I know you don't want to, but that's where I'm going to (laughs) go. No. (laughs) Never mention ghosts again. (laughs) So the reason why ghosts remain imprinted upon the world is because of an emotional reason and partly because of reason of will as well. They either chose that they didn't want to die or they panicked it and they didn't want to die. It was emotional cling to the earth. Mm-hmm. And so I'm guessing that magic has a similar reaction. If you die and your emotional strength to casting that curse is still there, was still present at your death, then I guess the curse lingers, especially if you're a very talented, powerful wizard. I don't know whether I like that description or not. Mm. I like the idea that the emotions that you're feeling at the point of your death yeah. Or even just like throughout your life can continue to linger on. But I also don't like the idea that emotions just last forever, no matter how many times we wipe you off the face of the earth. <laughs> your emotions are still here. Okay. So getting away from spells, the other major kind of magic that we see is potions. Yes. So potions are like making a potion is a magical process which involves magical ingredients and also wand work. Yeah. According to J.K. Rowling, potions aren't exactly spells, but wands come into play invariably in the creation of potions, so muggles can't brew potions. Yes. You need to have some level of magic to do it. Which is funny, because I remember a tale from Beetle the Bard called The Fountain of Fair Fortune, in which one of the witches was upset because her wand was stolen from her and she couldn't do magic anymore. But then at the end of the story, she went to the fountain and realized that she could become a potioneer, that she could just brew potions and still be a magical person. So maybe she mastered wellness magic. But even then, if she did master wellness magic, why not just go back to being a regular witch and not just a potioneer? Mm. Whatever. Um, <laughs> but anyway. Yet another example of fairy tales <laughs> lying to us. Yeah. I mean, the tales of being the Bard have been disproved before, as some of it's just fiction. Like with the warlock's hairy heart, that's impossible magic. Mm. You can't remove your heart from your body and keep it in the casket. The next kind of magic that we see are magical abilities. So I'm saying things that people can do which are obviously magical. Yeah. But they don't require like a wand, spells, potions. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll go through these and we'll see what we think. So like metamorphogai. Yeah. The first one I've got is physical bodily transformations. So metamorphogai and animagi. Yes. Both of those can be done without needing a wand. Yeah. Coming an animagus requires years of study and there's a big complicated magical process, which we will go into one day. Yeah. But metamorph is apparently some kind of innate hereditary ability. I think that's fine. I think that'll make sense. Metamorphs are just a different species to regular wizards. A different species? Yeah, it's like how werewolves are a different species, that you can still be a wizard and a werewolf. Werewolves aren't a different species. That's a condition, a medical condition. Look it up on Harry Potter Wiki. Harry Potter Wiki classifies... Okay, I'm not going to listen to some racist... Harry Potter Wiki classifies lycanthropy as a type of species. So it has species and then it has two dot points, human slash wizard, and then werewolf. Yeah, that's just bullshit. That's like when homosexuality was classed as a mental illness. <laughs> uh, werewolves are a different species. No, they're not. Piece of shit. Well, yeah, anyway, I think that a wolf guy is a different species. They've integrated into the wizarding population. But that's fine. 
That's good. Uh, so you think they're like a magical creature? Yeah. Mimicking humans? Is that what you're saying? No, well, I think they're just a magical creature that can alter their appearance. A shapeshifter. But why are they human? Like, they're anthropomorphic. Well, there's lots of magical creatures that are anthropomorphic, like vampires, zombies, or inferior, they're not magical creatures. But those all, those, those all started as human! <laughs> you gave examples of two things that started human. <laughs> Elves are anthropomorphic. They're smaller, but they're anthropomorphic, so are goblins. Okay, just, just for a sec. What do you mean by anthropomorphic? I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> <laughs> two legs, two arms, a head, a body? Right? You mean humanoid. Humanoid. What's anthropomorphic mean? <laughs> anthropomorphic is when you take an inanimate <laughs> object and give it lifelike features. So like a tree with a face that talks is an anthropomorphized tree. Oh, right. Okay. Like the tree from Pocahontas. Yeah. Nice. No, yeah, sorry. I meant humanoid. <laughs> I let that slide the first few times, but you kept using it. Vila are humanoid as well. They're just glowing and floating. But Vila are like scary bird women that hide and pretend to be human. Look, I don't have a problem with Manimorpha guy. I'm just saying, I think they're a different species. <laughs> but I'm, that's, that's like, you've tapped into my primal ape brain and I'm freaking out <laughs> at the idea that there's like some kind of shapeshifter species. Okay, table this. Yet another thing that we've uncovered See, I knew doing this episode was going to be such a hassle, because every time we bring up a new point, it's like, oh, and there's an episode in this. Yeah, okay. Okay, Metamorphagai. Remind us, listeners, we'll get back to it eventually. The next ability I have are Seers, or Prophecy. Yeah. So it's possible for some witches and wizards to predict the future, but obviously this is unreliable, so... Clairvoyance, like, is it an innate ability or is it a learnable practical process? We don't really know. It really seems like it's the former. It's an innate ability that some people have and some people don't. Yeah, but I, what if it's like all wizards have a bit of it, but some people are just a bit stronger with it than others? Because, mm. like, there's plenty of instances throughout the books where people talk about very prophetic things, even just an offhand comments or if they mention a dream or if they have a dream. It seems like, you know, the whole world's fitting into a prophecy in Harry Potter because it is. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we should really, <laughs> it's happening again. We should really do an episode <laughs> on like fate and self-fulfilling prophecies. Yeah. But I agree. Harry's dreams are often prophetic in a way that doesn't quite make sense for a, like a real person. It makes sense because he's a fictional character. Yes. And JK decides what he dreams and she decides what happens in the world. Yeah. But as a real person, like, how did he dream about Quirrell's turban speaking to him in Voldemort's voice? <laughs> yeah. On like his first day at Hogwarts. How does that make, what? Yeah. He just guessed it. He guessed the ending of that book. <laughs> he's that good. In his dream. <laughs> <laughs> he just mismarpled it. <laughs> and Ron as well. Yeah, Ron. Um, Ron often makes offhand comments which turn out to be true. So yeah, I, what if it's just like all wizards have a little bit of this ability, but some people are just stronger with it or better with it and more attuned with it than others? And there's probably some sort of difference between, you know, Ron's offhand comments, Harry's dreams, yeah. and the kind of prophecies that we see uh, Trelawney making where she yeah. goes into a trance and says those things. Because otherwise divination as a subject at school is a waste of time. If it's some, if it's some sort of innate ability that only maybe 0.5% of the wizarding population has, why are they offering it as a subject at Hogwarts? Like, yeah. have, it as a, have it as a school club that you could join voluntarily rather than a subject is like, oh, I need to do something. Because mm. you'd never be able to pass it. <laughs> It would just be something that only people who can do it would learn. It wouldn't be a school subject. It would be like an- A club. A club. I was thinking more like something that you would look at in adulthood, like something that's not part of your actual formal schooling. Yeah. But, you know, once you leave Hogwarts, it's like, oh, there's a class in divination for seers or people who think they have the sight running down at the local, I don't know, bookshop, I was going to say. <laughs> you know, there's classes in the bookshop. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, legimency and occlumency. Yeah. So telepathy and anti-telepathy. Yes. It is unclear if this is a spell or a skill. 
Fantastic Beast kind of fucked it yeah. and made it look like it's a skill, like an innate ability. No, it's not. In <laughs> the Harry Potter series, it looks like it's a spell, a learned skill that you have to develop and then cast a spell to use. However, in books one to four, Harry often feels as though certain people, notably Dumbledore and Snape, confirmed legilimens, yes. are reading his mind. Yes without casting any kind of spell or seeming to do anything. Yes. So we don't know exactly how that works. Here's my hot take. Do you want to hear my hot take? Yeah. It's a skill. So for a focused, strong penetration of someone's mind, you need to sit them down, eye contact, spell and everything. Mm -hmm. But maybe just to get a little bit of a whiff of what someone's feeling or thinking, especially if that person's already very susceptible. And Harry, as a young teenage boy, is a susceptible emotional sponge. Yeah. Harry is open. He's an open book. If you're a skilled legilimens, you should be able to figure out if he's lying, what he's thinking, and things like that. Mm -hmm. And same with Queenie. I think it's a skill that she's developed and developed hella well so that she doesn't even need to use a wand to do it. That makes me not like Queenie. (laughs) (laughs) I already know Dumbledore and Snape are amoral. They're just bad people. It's like, it's perfectly fine for me to read everyone's minds all the time. Privacy doesn't matter. Consent doesn't matter. These children I've surrounded myself are nothing to me. That's exactly how they think. Pick for slaughter. But Queenie, Queenie, it's not okay to read people's minds without their permission. She is doing that 24-7 to total strangers. She's sneaky. And helpless muggles. She's a gossip. Like, (laughs) what's his name? What's the muggle from that? Jacob. Jacob? Jacob. Jacob has zero ability to defend himself against Queenie. Yep. I didn't like that either, how she was just reading his mind the minute that he walked in the door, telling him, oh yeah, you want this kind of pie, you th- you're thinking this, don't worry, lots of men think this and they see me. I was like, hmm, I know this is cute and flirty, but it's also very gross and annoying and invasive. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It's invasive and wrong. Yeah. I don't want to dislike Queenie because Queenie's very nice. Mm. But the only reason that I don't dislike her is because she's nice. If she was doing those things with even the slightest bit of malice, she suddenly becomes a very terrifying character. Yeah. Next ability. Again, this is another one that it's unclear if this is a a learned skill or some kind of spell. Apparition and disapparition. Oh, it's a learned skill. It is. They learned it in school. I'm trying to think of what I mean. Is it a spell or is it a skill is what I want to say. It's a spell. Because it's something that you have to learn, but there's no incantation and there's no wand movement, but it does require a wand, which is a wizards can't operate without a wand. So what kind of magic is this? What branch of magic is it? I think they don't actually require a wand. I think it's just easier with a wand because, again, the wand is that focus point and apparition requires a lot of focus. Okay. So it's possible to apparate with wandlessly if you're a master of wandless magic. But for an average witch or wizard, you should really use a wand for apparition because the risk is too high. Yeah, it's dangerous with a wand. Yeah. But if apparition is possible without a wand, that makes Azkaban scary because they should be able to teleport out of there. Yeah, they should, but they're so like drained and depressed, I doubt they can focus for longer than a few minutes. Syria should have been able to have have right out of there. He had 12 years to focus on that. (laughs) That's another thing we can talk about. (laughs) Yeah. Every time I say something, a new episode topic spawns. (laughs) Parcel tongue. It's a language, but it's also hereditary. Yep. So that's got to be magic. Uh Uh-huh. But also, you can learn this language. Dumbledore learns parcel tongue. Yep. But... Tom Riddle speaks it innately. No one ever taught him Parseltongue, he just knew it. Wasn't that because he was descendant of Sal Sarsletheran? Yes. So yeah, it passes down hereditary. That's not how language works. True. <laughs> True. You speak English because mum and dad taught you English. You weren't born <laughs> with English imprinted in your brain. But maybe that's how magical languages work. All magical languages or just Parseltongue? What other magical languages are there that you can think of? Uh, gobbledygook, the goblin language. Yeah, that's not a human language. Is is parcel tongue a human <laughs> language? It's a snake language. I just realized that as I said it. <laughs> Snakes are humans. <laughs> not a human language. What bullshit is this? Anyway. Uh, <laughs> what I like about parcel tongue 
is that it doesn't just work with your regular snakes. It works with magical snakes like basilisks as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great. Muggles and witches use the same language. Yeah, all right. Even though one of them is magical and one of them is not. I guess it makes sense that like pythons and basilisks speak the same language. Okay. All right. So why is it? You just accepted that real easy. All right. Yeah. All right. I'll take it. So why is it that <laughs> parcel tongue is hereditary? Look, I guess, you know, well, I have my theories about Salazar Slytherin. I guess Salazar Slytherin was raised speaking parcel tongue. <laughs> well, I don't know. Raised by snakes in the woods. And then he had to learn English. I do like raised by snakes. That's a good Salazar theory. I don't have any problem with Salazar being able to speak parcel tongue or any of his descendants because you can assume that um, Voldemort's mother and uncle and grandfather, you can assume that they all learned parcel tongue like as children. Voldemort's mother was taught parcel tongue, but Voldemort was orphaned as a baby, so nobody ever taught him parcel tongue. So how does he know it? No, it's just innate. It's just part of his biology to be able to speak parcel tongue. Yeah, exactly. So that makes it a magical ability. Are we arguing the same point? Yeah. Sometimes I feel like we just pick fights for no reason. It's just the tone we use. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm always angry. <laughs> yeah, so parcel tongue's a magical ability. Does that make sense with your definition of magic being a manifested emotion? What's the emotion of I want to talk to this snake? I have that emotion 24-7, I don't know about you, <laughs> honestly. I think maybe the emotion is like a... I want to control, maybe. Parcel tongues often used to control snakes, not just like to communicate with them as friends. Aww. I know that's sad. See, I would want parcel tongue just to have some cool slithery friends. I know. I live in Australia. There's snakes everywhere. Lots of friends. Yeah. I want to be able to tell these creatures that I love them and mean them no harm. Yeah. Okay, the final magical ability that I have is magical resistance. Yes. This one was listed on Harry Potter Wiki and it referenced like giants and Hagrid's right. ability to resist magic, but I'm going to put that in a separate category because I want to bring up the way that Harry can throw off the Imperious Curse using sheer force of will. See, I don't see magical resistance as something innate or hereditary. It's just a skill. It's just a skill. So if you have a very strong will, then you can throw it off. So I guess that makes sense with the Imperious Curse because the Imperious Curse is a kind of mental magic. You're taking control of somebody else's mind. And it sort of comes into play with uh, Legimency and Occlumency as well. Is it Legimency or Legilimency? I always say Legilimacy, but I think that sounds wrong. <laughs> I don't think there's any L's in that word. I think the spell is legilimens, because I remember Snape saying that. Yeah, in the movies. And then but the skill is legimency. Legimen- whatever. l <laughs> Mind reading. Why can't they just say mind reading? <laughs> <laughs> Latin fucks. <laughs> and I was saying earlier that I think it's possible to throw off jinxes with just your will. Like, that's why the eye contact is necessary. Right. So is it possible to resist the effects of any spell, assuming that you are powerful and in control enough? I think with jinxes, because they're minor spells, you can resist them if you are powerful and can focus and control enough. But with spells like Imperio, that requires a specific kind of mental will. Mm-hmm. I think why Harry was so good at it is one, because he's the main character and he's good at everything. Yeah. And two, <laughs> because he has a lot of experience i guess with being ordered around and being told what to do and so when he knows that he doesn't want to do something he can cling to that and so that's why he was pretty good at it and maybe the influence of voldemort in his brain as well does that yeah harry's brain's a bit wrong yeah so spells potions abilities now i want to talk about artifacts magical objects yeah this is where i'm worried that your definition of magic is going to stop making sense can I just add, do you remember how last episode we were talking about the five exceptions to Garp's laws of transfiguration, elemental transfiguration? Yes. I reckon magical artifacts is one of those exceptions alongside money and food as well. So things like the Philosopher's Stone, things like that. Oh, those things can't be conjured? Yeah. Or transfigured or something? That makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, continue. Yeah, I think basically every magical object we see is something that takes a lot of skill and effort yeah. to create. I don't think you can wave your wand and create a magic broom, for example. Yeah, they're pretty unique. Okay, so I'll admit I'm a bit confused as to how magic items work. Mm-hmm. It kind of depends if spells die with their casters, which we've decided that 
I guess they don't if they're strong enough. Mm-hmm. It has to be possible to imbue something with magic. That's the only thing that makes sense. Yeah, that's what I always assumed. I think magic also fades if the thing that is being imbued with magic doesn't have its own magical properties. That's clear from a Horcrux. Is it? Right? Or does a Horcrux make something infallible? Yeah, a Horcrux makes something infallible. I think curses are the opposite. Curses and spells, I think, are different. Because curses seem to last forever and get stronger as they go, Uh whereas spells fade over time. Yeah, I can agree with that. Maybe there's also, like, spells can go dormant as well, mm-hmm. um, or become self-perpetuating. Like, maybe you fill something with magical energy, and then it sort of generates its own energy once you've disconnected from it. Yeah. I also think that if something has enough magic in it, it gains a bit of sentience. Yeah, I agree with that as well. I think that makes sense in terms of your definition of magic, because if magic is manifested in motion and will... Mm-hmm. then it makes sense that if you fill something with enough magic, it sort of takes on a bit of a life of its own. Even if it's just a repetition of a certain task. So, like, say I magic my my spoon and pot, that whenever I make soup, I get that spoon to stir the pot. It'll eventually just start doing it by itself, maybe, if I magic it to do that enough. I think so. Okay, so I can't go through all of the magical objects in the series, obviously. That's going to take forever. Yeah. Uh, but some of the magical objects that I think are notable are brooms. Yeah. Brooms are made out of a magical wood. They're covered in spells, but that magic fades with time. So old brooms fly poorly and they don't respond properly. Yeah. But when you compare a broom to the flying car, the flying car has so much magic in it that it's a bit alive. None of the brooms we see in Harry Potter are a bit alive. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. You agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, like, brooms always respond to Harry as if he barely has to move them or direct them. But maybe that's because Harry is such a good seeker and such a good flyer. Yeah, but Harry, he is in control of the broom. The broom isn't flying itself. Yes. It's just that it's very responsive. Yeah. It's just a very good broom. He always has the best brooms. Yeah. And notably, when he doesn't have brooms, like when um, his Nimbus 2000 is broken and he has to fly the school brooms, he struggles with them because they're not good. The Marauder's Map? Oh, gosh. I don't think the Marauder's Map has any sentience to it. I think it just has spells on it. Yeah. And I think it will presumably stop working eventually, like the magic will fade. I think, oh, yeah, yeah, I can agree with that. It's not sentient enough, like, because... The Marauders didn't know about the room of requirements, so that's not on the map. Yeah. Hogwarts were to, say, renovate, so say they demolished the Easter Wing and replaced it with a swimming pool. That wouldn't show up on the map. Yeah, the map isn't all-knowing or all-powerful. It only has the knowledge that the Marauders were able to put into it. So it's not infallible. Yeah. Oh, we got to do an episode on the Marauders map as well. Oh, yeah. All the problems that create. Portraits and photographs. Ugh. So a lot of people have problems with the portraits. Like, oh, are they alive? What's going on with them? I think they're fine. Yeah. Because it seems like it's just like a limited representation of a person. Yeah. And you'd assume that just the paint or the chemicals, if you're using photographs, just have special properties which allow, you know, movement and some basic speech. They're a bit independent, but they're not alive. Photographs, you take the photo and you dip it in a potion and that makes the figures in the photo be able to move. They only move in a way that's representative of how they were in that moment. Yeah. Or how they would have acted in that moment. Yes, it's strange. They don't like, like you can't show a photo new stimulus and have it respond in a new way. Uh, the mirror of error said. Oh, yes. We don't know where that came from, what it is, or how it works. I assume it's goblin made. Hmm. Okay. Why do you assume that? Uh, I just think it is. Well, if they're obsessed with shiny things, a mirror that shows you your heart's desire is kind of nice to have around. (laughs) That felt racist. (laughs) It felt racist. They're obsessed with shiny things. Like magpies. (laughs) No, they are. That's how they're written. (laughs) I assume that the goblins made it because we know that goblins make very incredible, gorgeous pieces of um, stuff treasure i was gonna say um they make weapons and jewelry and um incredible artifacts like that and they can imbue those things with magic 
So I think if wizards don't understand what the mirror Varaset is or how it works, I kind of assume that it's a piece of goblin technology that has fallen into wizarding hands somehow. Fallen in, oh yeah, fallen into wizarding hands. That they've stolen. Which has been stolen from its rightful owners. Yeah. Yeah, okay, I can believe that. <laughs> okay, and finally, the Deathly Hallows. Oh, okay, they don't count. They're made by death. <laughs> Dumbledore says that they're just ancient artifacts made by very powerful witches and wizards. Yeah, well, Dumbledore's not always right. (laughs) Hey, Dumbledore doesn't know everything, alright? He's not that great. If Dumbledore's claim is true, then the entire universe breaks, because it doesn't make sense that a wand is more powerful than other wands. Yeah. Because wands are just focusing tools. Wands are just focusing tools, that's right. And that there's, there's an infallible invisibility cloak that never tears or dims or anything like that and that there's a stone that can bring back a vision of a dead loved one so you think that what the objects are all fake no i think death made them oh death is alive and death is alive in the harry Potter universe and death made them all right i kind of think that they're all bogus but again here's another episode listeners one day <laughs> we'll do something with the deathly hallows <laughs> okay of those collection of objects how do you think that artifacts fit into your definition of magic? That's a good question. All right. So, Rhea, have you ever watched Rick Harrison's pawn shop? No, but I'm familiar with the concept of a pawn shop, if that's all I need to understand what you're about to say. <laughs> yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> so, people grow attached to certain objects. Mm-hmm. And when people grow attached to certain objects, one could say it's as if they imbue a bit of their life and personality into this object. Maybe they've had it their entire lives. Maybe they bought it or came to acquire it in a certain poignant moment of their lives. And so whenever it's passed down to someone else or moved to someone else, it's as if the memory of its previous owner is still attached to that object Mm -hmm. because we remember the person through that object. I'm saying that in Harry Potter's universe, That same thing happens, but those memories and those strong feelings that we have attached to those objects are imbued with magic as well. Okay. So magical objects are just vessels for emotion Mm -hmm. and memories by the wizards and witches who created them or who owned them. Okay, so magic is still not an external force. It's an internal thing. Yeah. But it's possible to transfer some of your internal emotions and will, is what I'm going to say, into an object and then have that object be permanently infused with it because some of these objects are ancient and permanently magical yeah some of them fall apart over time like broomsticks broomsticks are fine because they've just got spells on them and they stop working eventually yeah but what about what about fuck did i go through all of them oh yeah actually everything that i've listed there makes sense yeah miravera said was goblin maids that's different magic the deathly hallows you think aren't real i think they're made by death made by death yeah oh the pensieve what about the pensieve Pensieve. That's an ancient thing? Or is it just something Dumbledore owns? I think other people own pensieves. Yeah, I kind of assume that pensieves are just commercially available. Yeah. Buy them at the dollar store. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not that commercially available. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's something you can buy. So I wouldn't call them a supremely magical object. That They're just a useful tool. Okay, so we assume that magic fades out of objects over time, basically. Yes. Okay, I feel that makes sense. Yeah. Unless the magic that was used to create or put on that object was cast by a particularly powerful wizard who maybe clung onto the emotions or reasoning for the creation of that object until the day they died. Okay. Let's go into the final kind of human magic. I have a couple of quick points after this, but this is the final kind of human magic. All right. Dark magic. Ooh. So... Dark magic is basically everything we've spoken about up until now, but mm-hmm. magic that is used to harm, control, or kill its target. Yep. Also sort of generally bad practices, which aren't technically like casting a spell, fit into the area of dark magic. So things like drinking unicorn blood, mm. practicing necromancy, those things count as dark magic as well. Committing a sacrifice. Dark magic is harder to control stranger, less understood, more dangerous, and also more difficult to heal. So, for example, George's ear getting cursed off is much more difficult to heal, but people splinting off their body parts isn't a big deal. Uh, It's implied that 
dark magic has a corrupting effect. Yeah. Either like a physical corruption of the body, as is the case with Horcruxes, or like a corruption of your mind, I guess. Yeah. But maybe that's just because, maybe just using magic to harm people twists you if you do it enough. Maybe it's not the magic itself, it's just the fact that you're a bad person. Yeah. I can't imagine that you'd be a very happy-go-lucky, caring individual if you're constantly, like, torturing people. (laughs) Yeah, basically. It would do something to you. (laughs) So Dumbledore implies that dark magic isn't inherently evil. So even a spell that is designed to cause harm can be used to do good. It's all about, you know, the person who's casting the spell and what they intend to do. Uh, Do you agree with that? Yeah. You could use a Sectum Sempra spell to say, cut off someone's leg Mm -hmm. for a good reason. Maybe the leg's infected. There's no other choice. Yeah. The example from the book is Dumbledore asking Snape to kill him. Yes. Obviously casting the Avada Kavada spell is, like, that's an evil, unforgivable spell. But in that instance, Dumbledore's asking him to do it. And he's like, it's not going to damage your soul, like, unless you think it will. It's all about what you want to do and whether you think you're doing the right thing. Exactly. That's the same in the muggle world. Killing people is wrong, but sometimes it's right. Sometimes it's the best option. Yeah. And it should be legal in Australia. Mm. Anyway. um, (laughs) (laughs) It should be legal to kill people. Euthanasia. Oh, euthanasia. Right. Okay. I was thinking like if someone attacks you and you defend yourself and then they die. (laughs) I was thinking euthanasia. I'm just more violent than you, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. I think dark magic is just the word we use for magic that causes harm. And it's like, this is purely a matter of ethics. It's not. Yeah. It's not like there's this kind of bad, evil magic and then there's good, pure magic. It's just what you use it for and how you're using it. Like, there's no bad emotions, there's no good emotions. It just depends on how you express those emotions. However, it seems like there are clear exceptions to that. For example, drinking unicorn blood is evil and curses you. And creating a horcrux is such an evil act that it literally rips your soul and will eventually turn you into a snake man. My theory is that drinking unicorn blood and killing people to make horcruxes is the antithesis of love magic. You're doing the opposite of love. That makes sense. Yeah. If we assume that, like, love magic is the best, most pure kind of magic there is, which is what we're told in the series. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've talked about magic a lot, but I'm going to briefly go through some examples of the different kinds of things which are classed as dark magic. They're basically just the things I've been saying already, but with harm as the intent. Yeah. Jinx, Hex, and Curse are spells that are classed as dark magic because they cause harm. Yep. Brewing poisons and dangerous potions is also classed as dark magic. Mm-hmm. For example, the potions that restored Voldemort to his body is considered a kind of dark magic. Yep. Would you class love potions as dark magic? I would, because they're not pure love. They're just infatuation and obsession. Items can be bewitched with dark magic and become dark artifacts, mm-hmm. possibly permanently. Yep. Uh, some of the heirlooms in the Black House are cursed. The Hand of Glory is a cursed item. Nice. The Opal Necklace that Malfoy buys from Borgen and Burks. Yep. And Umbridge's Black Quill are all cursed items. Nice. And apparently breeding or creating dark creatures. Like basilisks. Like inferi or basilisks. So some creatures are considered dark and I, we will definitely do an episode on dark creatures and what makes a creature dark, but... Just the list is, it's the opposite of a unicorn, it's dark. (laughs) Acromantula, Basilisk, Dementor, Grindylo, Hag, Inferi, Letherfold, Rougarou, Vampire, and Werewolf. Rougarou? Are they like dark kangaroos? (laughs) No. (laughs) A Rougarou is, I think, a... Damn. (laughs) I wish it was a dark kangaroo. Kangaroo Jack. <laughs> I think a Rougarou might be a Native American thing. I'm not sure. I'm just going off my supernatural knowledge, and I vaguely remember there being a Rougarou <laughs> in one of the earlier seasons. Oh, okay. I don't remember what it is, sorry. We'll go into it one day. Are you thinking of a Wendigo? I am thinking of a Wendigo, but I think a Rougarou is along the same lines. We don't have time to discuss what makes a creature dark right now, <laughs> but I have problems With at least one of the creatures on that list. Maybe you can guess which one, listeners. Werewolves. Yes. I have strong opinions about werewolves. And basilisk. I have strong opinions about that, mainly because they're nice and cool and I want one. (laughs) 
Yeah, what's wrong with a basilisk? Yeah. Just because it kills you with its gaze. She's just trying to live. Leave her alone. She's just trying to live. She can't help it. Yeah, it's not her problem that you die. Don't look at her. Don't look at her. Leave her alone. <laughs> also, big spiders, just because they eat people doesn't mean they're evil. Yeah, it's because they're spiders. Sometimes things eat other things. Because they're spiders, that's why. Terribly misunderstood creatures. The only other kind of magic that I haven't spoken about is wand lore, magic wands. But that needs to be an episode on its own. That's too much for this. Yeah, that's too much. But it seems like it fits into our current definition of what magic is. Like, there's magical components. It's a more of a focus of a wizard's internal magic than some kind of external thing. And also they're imbued with magic, so they're a bit sentient. Mm-hmm. It seems like everything's fine. Now, we've been talking for 70 minutes. I have two other sections that I said I would go through. Magical creatures and the ancient magic, the ancient elemental magic. Looks like it's time. Do we need to do a part three? Looks like it's time for a part three. Oh, (laughs) fucking hell. I knew this would fucking happen when you said, let's do this episode. I'm like, I think you mean (laughs) miniseries. It's going to take forever. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Part three, I guess. Okay. So, listeners, at the beginning of this episode, I said I was going to talk about humans, magical everything else that isn't humans, and ancient or elemental magic. But we've been running for a long, long time, so I guess we're going to do a part three, and you'll get those two sections next episode. Okay. (laughs) Well, thanks, listeners. I've been Jem. Your can't believe there's this much to talk about, hoes. I've been Rhea, and... I have just so much more to say. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Podcast 9 and 3 Quarters. This show is written and edited by Rhea and Jem. You can send us an email at 9and3quarterspodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Tumblr at podcast9and3quarters.tumblr.com or talk to us separately on Twitter. Rhea is at smashmouthria and Jem is at jem underscore justjem. Please feel free to send theories or ask questions and bombard us with so many messages that we go mad and run away to a hut on a rock in the sea just to avoid them. Our logo art is by Winged Corgi. Find more of her art at wingedcorgi.tumblr.com. This week's intro music was Harry's Wondrous World by John Williams, and our outro music was Hedwig's Theme by John Williams. You'll hear from us again in two weeks' time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.